This hour sponsored by Dell Technologies, enabling digital transformation for media workflows. is NAB Show Live. You're watching NAB Show Live, produced by Broadcast Beat. I'm your host, Steve Wong, an Emmy-winning technologist that specializes in media, telco, and the technology sectors for DXC Technologies. I'm excited to have a, a true technology thought leader, Riza Rizul, the CTO of Real Networks. Sir, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks very much, it's always a pleasure to be here. I got to say, out of all the technologists I know, I respect you the most, and you know that I, I love to bounce ideas off you and, and hear the cool stuff you're working on. So. Gosh, we should get a room. <laughs> <laughs> I got a discount on that. So, something that I, I was sort of surprised about, that, that I had no idea until we, we had a conversation, that, that real networks, the, the software that I had loaded on my computers in, in the other days, the yeah. software that I played music with, they had a large interest in Napster. Yes. So, so tell me about that. You know, music streaming was actually um, an initiative that started inside Real Networks. It was a small business inside Real Networks. It grew, um, uh, it was called Rhapsody at yeah. the time. The business grew and we jettisoned it off. It became its own public corporation. Mm -hmm. um, later on, we acquired the assets of Napster and then renamed the application Napster mm -hmm. because it had, a, I don't know, it was, had more um, brand value, I guess. Um, so Napster is um, uh, its own public company. Um, it's, I think, the only profitable streaming music service uh, the others are, uh, you know, struggling. Um, it's it's pretty much a, a a powered by brand, though. Rather than um, emphasizing the consumer-facing application, it's now the technology that's in smart TVs, really, uh, in in cars, in in numerous other devices, and so Real Networks powers that technology. And then what you heard in the news recently was that Real Networks doubled down on its investment in Napster. It doubled its um, stake, where I think we're up to 84% oh, wow. holding in a public company. So you've got one public company owning a large chunk of another public company. The reason we did that was because this, the stock came on the market at a bargain basement price that we just couldn't. Buy low, um, sell high, right? Indeed. <laughs> and so. Uh, but 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 it's it's run as a completely separate public corporation, um, and uh, is is doing well. It's thriving. I mean, that's what has always impressed me about Real. You know, I remember in the early days right. that Rob was one of the first people to that actually broadcast a sports game on the internet back in. Gosh. God, what was that? The yeah, when the nineties or something like that. When the Earth's crust was cooling, um, <laughs> you know, Real Networks has taken on the the hard tasks. Um, so. Streaming media is now fairly ubiquitous. It's a commodity item, but it was invented by Real Networks in a time when streaming across the internet was difficult. Remember your your dial-up to your 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 connection to the internet was through dial-up modem, and so to 
first of all, create a streaming media protocol, but also create a compression codec that could compress video sufficiently to uh, transmit it across low bandwidth connections was, was impressive for the time. Um, and that business still continues largely in China, though, for historical reasons. <laughs> it, it actually, Napster also changed the music business because, because right. of Napster's threat to the record right. industry. You know, Steve Jobs went in there and sort of helped everyone out and changed right. how records are consumed. Then, of course, we know, you know the two Shans that started Napster, one went on to start a small company called Facebook. And um, so it's really, you know, real with, with Napster is really the disruptive kind of bad boys of the internet that, that I like hanging out with, actually. So. I, I, I guess, yeah, and I guess Rob likes bad boys. So, <laughs> and since the, you know, uh, um, so, so Nap, Napster was, uh, at that time, it was associated with pirated content. Yeah. At the, you know, in, in the modern era, it's very much associated with commercial content fully legitimized. But, but you know, mm -hmm. when, when, I, when I used Napster, I didn't use it to use music. What I, what I loved about Napster was a search engine back in those days. Isn't that amazing? Because yes. that's the only way right. I could really, at that time, find music effectively. Right, right. Uh, you know, it wasn't always great content, but yeah. you know, and, and you guys took that technology and moved it on. Indeed. So one thing I, I just want to get your thoughts on, I know you're, you're deep uh, mm -hmm. in metadata. So how, you know, as a company like Napster use that metadata for music? Because I see that, you know, you know our, our clients uh, out there in the music industry, you know, are, are just obsessed with metadata now because yeah. of the streaming services. Well, you know, when, when I talk about metadata, I'd like to talk more about it in the, maybe the OTT context okay. uh, rather than the music context because I see um, there is a, and your previous speaker from Verizon uh, touched on it a little bit about the sort of convergence of uh, computer vision with streaming media, mm -hmm. the ability to uh, when you analyze, when you're encoding the content, well, you're processing it intensely. Why not look to see who's in the frame, who, uh, what's in the frame, what brands are there, um, what activities are presented, so that when it comes up to a, um, a commercial slot, you can serve up a, um, a spot that's more contextually relevant for the content that's being played. Mm -hmm. Or let's say you detect a celebrity and you've got a, uh, a mapping between the celebrities and the brand endorsements that they've signed up to. Then you can roll a commercial that's uh, relevant and gives that a bit of tie-in to, to the content um, that, that, that's playing. So there are all these opportunities you're gonna start seeing it come along and uh, this is this is the area that I'm playing in currently. I was going to say that sort of reminds me of the talk we had about facial recognition last right. year. And right. So what's happened with facial recognition since the last time right. we talked? So you recall I was talking about it here in the same seat last year. Um, since then, uh, Real Networks launched the Safer product, SAFR, Secure Accurate Facial Recognition. Um, <laughs> In July of last year, we, we launched it free of charge to schools um, because we felt that you could secure a school campus better, secure the perimeter of the campus better with facial recognition. Mm -hmm. That's doing really well. Um, at, in the same town, at another trade show across town at the ISC West show, 
uh, Real Networks has a booth uh, where we're showing off um, Safer for security. And um, it's just recently um, the National Institute of Science and Technology um, ran a bake-off between um, 100 or so different facial recognition algorithms. Ours came out the top oh, wow. for live video. Congrats. So, so yeah, it's it great hard work by, by our team. Um, facial recognition, super important, but to be able to do it um, for live video is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that we took on the hard problem of streaming, streaming video uh, when it was very difficult to connect to the internet. We took on the hard problem of solving facial recognition in the live, in the wild case. So what we mean by in the wild is when a person's not looking directly at the camera, they're moving in the wild. And so imagine, back to your original question, imagine now um, the facial recognition processing being used uh, for live video for the OTT application, but for let's say live sports or um, your your camera, you you've got a camera shoot on the red carpet runway. You so might, it's not just for security. Then it's not just for security. No, I'm looking for you know broader applications for for facial recognition. Can you give me some examples that? Uh... Sure. Um, so you see a lot of uh, professional cameramen walking around with cameras with backpacks in there. And I thought, wow, well, we could drop our facial recognition into that backpack. So they get a signal to say, hey, um, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company has just walked into, um, into your field of view. You might want to keep on him. Or cameraman at the, um, at the Oscars might not know who the D and C list celebrities are, but Hey, we all have to know those guys. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Celebrity's a celebrity, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are live use cases, um, live sports. You know, you don't have the opportunity to ship all the footage up to the cloud like the SaaS providers want you to do and say, hey, just send us your, your footage and we'll batch process that. No, you can do that um, locally at the edge hmm. by partitioning the problem doing some of the processing in the edge, some in the cloud, you end up with a smarter solution. So I know there's been a lot of criticism about yeah. privacy and facial recognition. Yeah. What, are you, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so this is something we take extremely seriously. Um, uh, you, there is a responsibility to um, preserve the privacy of and respect the privacy of individuals. Um, so we start all of our um, user flows and the user experience flows with the opt-in process. Hmm. So, um, you know, when we have facial recognition running um, in the cloud uh, or um, with a camera po pointing at someone, um, you often think of it as the the subject of the facial recognition is a is an unknowing and a witless um, victim um, or or uh, a subject of, of, of facial recognition being wielded by some other entity, by a corporate or government entity. A little well, frightening sometimes. It's, huh? it's a bit frightening. But if you turn that around and say, why would a consumer want to assert their own identity? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I fancy myself as a VIP. 
Um, well, you are. Darling, okay. Um, <laughs> I'd like to be recognized walking into the airport so that... Or a casino, maybe. Exactly. Or walking into a hotel um, and recognized as a return uh, uh, visitor. I'd like to be able to jump a line um, and get a fast pass just by virtue of my face being recognized. Yeah. Going into a gymnasium, I don't want to have to carry that silly badge around with me. Um, I want to be recognized in my face. So there are numerous opt-in cases where you gain a consumer benefit through facial recognition. So I know facial recognition has been criticized for bias and things like that. So how do you combat that? Well, it's a, it's a, a very um, important question and, and one that we didn't dodge and uh, take as an after-the-fact um, issue. We took it on uh, um, right at the beginning of our development and it goes right to the heart of the training set, um, the data hygiene and the curation of the data. We made sure that for facial recognition, we sourced a training set from around the world across a, uh, a wide age group, or across a wide geography, across skin tones, and we've, according to NIST, we've ended up with um, consistently the lowest bias, either we're the, the, the lowest in one of the categories or we're in the top four out of 100 algorithms. So it's something that we took, we took seriously and we can see uh, some of the competitors um, taking quite a lot of flack for uh, algorithms where they're super accurate for white males, but then darker skinned females, they're not very accurate on them. And so we, um, we, we pride ourselves in having a very flat line in, in levels of accuracy across a range of faces. So now tell me with all these smart speakers out there, with Siri out there, with these facial recognition things, should I be concerned about uh, privacy? I, I, I think um, a lot of those smart speakers and you know the, the smart doorbells where um, there's a camera there. Um, initially, um, when they came out, um, there were integrations where you could open your face, the, the door would unlock by simple face recognition. And that is kind of, they've, the, the manufacturers have clamped down uh, a bit on that. I think when, the, when, when someone first went up to a, a letterbox and yelled in the door, Alexa, open the door, That's that, interesting. Then, then they realized, oh, right, security flaw. We hadn't thought about oh, that. Oh, wow. And so... Now you're making me nervous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so um, there are integrations. In fact, if you come and visit our office, all of our doors are opened up with facial recognition. I've so been there. I don't take my badge to work anymore. Um, I walk in, um, I can look at the, the camera and the door clicks to unlock. And then... Uh, yeah, I got to say, the thing I like about your office, you only have happy employees. Because <laughs> right. you don't let them in if they're not smiling, right? Right. right. <laughs> so, but to take the level of, um, of confidence up higher, level of security higher, we, uh, we didn't want to be fooled simply by someone holding up a photograph to the camera, which would open the door. So we said, well, we have to show liveness. So we've got a number of algorithms that prove that the person in front of there is not a photograph, that it's a live person. And so the liveness algorithm that we use in the, in the office is smile to unlock. 
So you have to smile. And sometimes on a Monday morning, you know, <laughs> nothing's that funny. And <laughs> you're standing there at the door struggling to smile. <laughs> so I've got to ask you, you know, Real Network's one of the godfathers of streaming media. So have you guys abandoned that space? Are you, what are you doing? No, the, in fact, that whole um, product line, the engineering team still reports to me. Um, the business is largely in China. You know, for historical reasons, we kind of got squeezed out. Um, and there, it was a subject of a lawsuit with Microsoft and it was an out of court settlement, but the, the damage was done. In China, however, the real media brand and the real media codec thrived. Um, we're embedded in um, a billion or more devices. Uh, the old legacy codec, the real RMVB codec, uh, was the 10th version. We've now unrolled the 11th version of the codec that stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with HEVC, maybe even outperforms it mm. at the higher resolution um, uh, formats. Um, the beauty about the codec is it de it decodes in software hmm. on an ARM processor. So it can run um, in low-cost set-top boxes, in an HDMI dongle, in, um, and, and definitely on a, on a smartphone. So the codec's doing well, uh, but it's, it's the businesses in China. So you mentioned the Kodak. Mm. So, and I know you're putting a lot of emphasis on a proprietary Kodak as opposed yeah. to chasing standards. Why is that? It's, it's just a, a different strategy. Um, you know, maybe the, the, the fallacy that is being perpetuated is that standards-based is conflated with open source and free. And as we know, it's not open source and free. You mean MPEG's uh, not free? MPEG is not free. <laughs> you know, you try and uh, produce a, a you know, commercial product with an MPEG codec in there, and you'll get a letter, a demand letter, from MPEG LA for, um, the, the, for, for H.264, from HEVC Advanced or Velos Media uh, for, HE, for the HEVC codec. And uh, then the, I guess the industry rebelled against that and formed an alliance, Alliance for Open Media, mm -hmm. and came out with AV1 saying this is going to be free. But have you heard the news recently? What's the news? Um, uh, a patent pool called Sysvel has emerged and put out a press release that they will now be charging for AV1. For the free one? For the free one and for VP9. <laughs> and, for, and for Google's VP9 codec, you can, you can come and Isn't buy that licenses. Isn't called a patent troll? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and so what happens when you create a complex product like a codec and you, and you create it as an open standard, you expose yourself to the patent trolls because you are, infin you, you are revealing the infinite uh, decimal detail of the of your format, and uh, so that's that's one of the one of the downfalls of of going down that route. Um, nothing's free. There's no such thing as a free lunch, and so those companies that are making strategic bets on which codec to to build their streaming business around have to take that into account. And it might be that a proprietary codec is the way to go. Interesting. <laughs> So in wrapping, what, what do you want to leave the audience with? What do they need to know about 
real networks. What's the takeaway? Well, the company that invented streaming media is still innovating and ta tackling the hardest problems in the space. And um, I think maybe uh, my, my own hope is that there's a convergence between my two passions and my two preoccupations, the computer vision and the codec technology. And I think the use, the use cases, um, uh, the more use cases that ac actually can promote a social good and can enhance the user experience rather than um, accelerating a dystopian future, I think those are the ones that I will invest most of my energies in. Oh, again, Riza, thank you so much for coming. Always, sure. always a much. pleasure. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. And, uh, that's it. You're watching NAB, the NAB Show Live, brought to you by Broadcast Beat. Thank you very much. And that's it for us today. This hour sponsored by Dell Technologies, enabling digital transformation for media workflows.